Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry. This is Stuff You Should Know. And it's Stuff You Should Know about something that has nothing to do with the sun. (laughs) Are you relieved? Yes. Are you uh, suffering post-traumatic podcast disorder? A little bit. Yeah. But um, but overall, I'm feeling good about this. Okay. About this one coming up? Yeah. Finish strong. Yeah. What did Jerry say? Always do the suck one first? Yeah. Well, so far, so good. <laughs> yep. It just remains to be seen whether this one's great, but I don't see how it could be worse than the Aurora one. Well, this one about human head transplants, um, after I picked it, I thought, gee, should we even be covering this? Because, well, if you read opinion pieces about this potential head transplant surgery, which we'll get to, uh, a lot of people are saying like, this is, this is bad. This is junk science. This is dangerous medicine, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't even be talking about this stuff. Right. But then I read an article in The Atlantic, um, and it's The Atlantic. And I was like, you know what? If they're covering this, uh, then we should cover it, too. And people probably said the same thing about kidney transplants and heart transplants and skin grafts, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. But I think the the big difference with this is, and I think this is what the medical and bioethical community has a problem with, there's this one maverick, possibly lunatic scientist, surgeon, who is plowing ahead with this surgery with the rest of the medical field worldwide basically saying, stop, stop, like you can't do this. This is, we're not there yet. And he's saying, yeah. nope, we're there. I've even got somebody who's willing to do this. We're going to give it a shot. Well, Yes, yes and no. He's, a lot of that is, and this Atlantic article really kind of spells everything out. Uh A lot of that is, um, bravado out of this dude. Right. And there is probably no way that he's going to do this in December of this year, like he said he is. Yeah, he's said that he is going to go ahead with the surgery, at least officially is what he's saying, in December of 2017. That's not going to happen. Specifically, he's going to do it with a uh, Russian uh, computer engineer uh, named Valery Spiridonov. And, um, that may not happen with him. He so he has a, a Spiridonov has something called Wernig Hoffman disease, which is a spine, spinal muscular dystrophy. Yeah, or atrophy. And, um, has he backed out now? Cause he seemed pretty gung ho in everything I saw. No, he's gung ho, but he is on record as saying like, I don't want to be a part of an expensive, uh, euthanasia, uh, whatever procedure. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, the whole reason he wants to do this is to to get better, to improve his lot. He's wheelchair bound, and his his muscles are withering away. Uh, and he's thirty, and he he wants to be mobile again. He's thirty one so now, but yeah, I would he imagine started, he was thirty. Yeah, he doesn't want to do this just to die, right? So he's kind of um, and and what we're talking about, I guess we should just go ahead. If people are severely confused, it's called a human head transplant. But what it really is, is a human body transplant. 
Because what you're doing is, is you're taking a person, in this case, this Russian gentleman, uh, who has a fully functioning, uh, brain and from the neck up is fine, but his body is wasting away. And when they get, uh, to the point where they can do the surgery, they're going to get a body from a recently, very recently deceased person. Or, or, or soon to be deceased person. Yeah, they would just need to be brain dead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and move the heads, which would in turn give, uh, what, what's his name? Valerie, a, a new body. Yes. Exactly. Which is Which, as radical of a thing as you could ever imagine. There is no more radical medical procedure as we currently stand right now no, than this. No, no chance, not even close. And it's not like they're even swapping the heads. The, the donor's head just gets thrown away. <laughs> well. In a bucket. Yeah. Uh, I guess. <laughs> for, for a little Chuck to find. Yeah. I didn't think about that, but, um, there's, yeah, you don't put it back on. No, there's no point in it. So this this head transplant or body transplant, depending on your perspective, the whole idea, obviously, it's kind of an old idea. Like it goes back to Frankenstein and uh, you can make a case that Fra- Frankenstein is based on even earlier stuff like creating a golem from clay, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but the idea is not new, but the idea that it could actually be done is fairly new. Um, the the this surgeon who's planning on carrying it out, Dr. Sergio uh, Canavero, he published an article in 2013 and said, "Here's how I, I I plan to do this." And we'll get to that in a minute. But in the article that he wrote, the journal article he wrote, laying out how the surgery could be done, one of the first things he does is cite um, similar surgeries that were carried out on animals. Yeah, which we've covered these before in um, past episodes, I think on, like, I think one of them was a top ten list, like awful medical procedures or something. Yeah. I can't Sounds remember, like but uh, this one, one case specifically that stands out was in 1954. There was a Russian doctor named Vladimir uh, Demikov, and he uh, very famously grafted the head and forelegs of one dog onto another dog. Um, and apparently the, both of the heads could smell and hear and see and swallow and scream and lived. Um, I think he did this a few times and the biggest success was one of these dogs lived for 29 days. Right. Which is actually from what I'm seeing, that's a very, very long time. Yeah. Um, and this is at a time in the, what did you say, 54, 1954? Yeah. Um, this is a time when the only successful transplants that had been carried out in humans were bone, blood vessels, and corneas. They'd never done a major organ transplant yeah. yet. And this guy's getting dogs with grafted heads, two heads to live for 29 days. So it was a big deal. But even still, and I'm sure at the time people were like, that's pretty tasteless. Um, it, when looking back... Historically, you're like, why don't do that? Stop. I wish that it never happened. Yeah. What were you doing? And apparently, uh, Demikov's ultimate goal was to just basically get transplants down and 
create a bank of organs, an organ bank to where if you need a transplant, you could get any transplant you need at any time. Um, transplants would just be so routine. And he saw this as a, a means to, to an end, learning techniques, because apparently grafting dogs together would help you with that. Right. Which, I mean, it makes, makes a case. Yeah, he wasn't a mad scientist. He was trying to advance medicine. Right. Uh, so in 1970, there was, there, I noticed there had just been really big gaps in a lot of this stuff for good reason, I guess. Um, but in 1970, in, right here in the United States, uh, there was a rhesus monkey, uh, in Cleveland and one Dr. Robert White, uh, performed a head transplant and the monkey survived neurologically for 36 hours. But, uh, I believe he never actually connected the spinal cord. No. No, and that's the big, the biggest hurdle right now. Yeah, it was and still is. So, so Dr. White, I mean, still, this is pretty significant. He transplanted a head from one monkey to another and managed to, um, connect the, the major veins and arteries, um, and resuscitated, managed to resuscitate the, the monkey. Um, and it lived for a few days, but, um, Apparently it was uh, just an awful thing, even, even at the time. One of the scientists that was there, who's actually become, um, Dr. Canavero, the surgeon who wants to do the human head transplant, this, this other guy's become one of his greatest and most outspoken public critics. Um, he was there at the time when this, this, um, experiment in 1970 was carried out and he said, this is, this is a terrible thing to do, even to a monkey. He said, we tried to feed it. The first time we fed it, the food spilled out of its trachea onto the floor. Yeah, good Lord. Um, it, it was just an awful thing. And this guy's really beating the drum to like stop Dr. Canavero from, from carrying this out because he was there saying, or he saw the, he saw the monkey experiments. But Canavero is saying, you can say that all you want. All the food could have spilled out on the floor. Doesn't matter because it was successful. It, it, the monkey was revived for three days, but everybody agrees there was there the, the, they didn't connect the spinal column, and that's the big hurdle. That's one of the biggest unknowns with the actual head transplant. Yeah, and uh, more recently, in the past couple of uh, years, in fact, I think just last year, there's a, a surgeon who's actually partnered up with the Italian uh, doctor named. Um, Xiaoping Ren, uh, and he's a surgeon in Harbin, China, who has successfully done this on mice. Yeah, there, he's also partnered with another um, researcher at uh, Kongkuk University in Seoul, Korea, yeah. South Korea, who's also carrying these these some stuff out on mice. And Canavero is basically using these studies to say, hey. This is possible, but apparently the scientific community is saying yeah, this is these are not necessarily good studies. Well, and Ren, uh, Doctor Ren in China, like for what I gather, he is um, he's the one that's saying like let's just slow our roll here um, and do this. If we ever try to do it, do it when we really think we can. Like I've done a monkey, I've done some mice. Um, we're not ready to do a human yet, so let's just not talk about um, Valerie in December of 2017. And please stop doing TED Talks and going on news programs and just shut up for a little while. <laughs> that doesn't sound like that's in Sergio Canavero's DNA. 
No, he is very brash, sort of, uh, he, he's, he, they said in this article, he uses, he says bread instead of money, like, hey, if I can't raise the money, I'll go to, uh, someone like, uh, Zuckerberg and get the bread to do this. <laughs> it says here in the Atlantic article, he says, uh, Canabero tends to make blowhard statements that, uh, denigrate his critics like this. I'm into jujitsu, uh, jujitsu, he told me. So I have the martial arts mind that you need to tackle all the morons that come with idiotic questions. <laughs> he's not doing himself any favors. Uh, yeah, I don't think he sees it like that from what I'm seeing. Like there's this, I saw, um, where I get all my news, the Daily Mail. I saw a Daily Mail article on him and his procedure and it has a photo shoot of him wearing scrubs with a man's head on a platter. Yeah. Like doctors don't do that. They don't do photo shoots like that. They they are not trying to court controversy. Like yes, if you're a surgeon, like you you have some part of your fiber is pretty cocky and arrogant. Maybe even have a god complex. I think it's kind of required typically with um with that field, that profession, right? This guy is exponentially beyond anything that's even high end for a normal surgeon as far as egotism and um and blowhardness goes most of them don't don't boast about jujitsu publicly no uh in fact most scientists and doctors um most don't like him at all they said this is one quote uh he glibly glides past major problems with his human centipede level medical horror show his plan (laughs) is insane like james bond villain insane and will amount to an elaborate act of slow torture and murder. Yeah. So I think he's partially, obviously, really like that as a dude, but they don't have the money it takes. They don't have the bread, like $100 million to do this. And I think he thinks all this media attention is what is going to get him the bread to carry out this operation. (laughs) You're going to call it bread from now on? (laughs) Just through this show. Did you see $100 million? The most I saw was $13 million. Oh, I mean, I've seen it all over the place. That's the thing. Yeah. I've seen it takes anywhere from 30 doctors to 100 doctors to assist in this, which is one of the other big problems is getting up to 100 legit doctors that will do this. Right. You know? This guy's like walking clickbait. Oh, yeah. So well, let's take a break, man, and then we'll come back and we'll 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 tell all the grisly details of his plan. All right, Chuck. So back in 2013, this Sergio Canavero hit the scene in a journal. Um, oh, what's the journal called? Surgical Neurology International. It's an open source journal. Yeah, he's no quack, we should point out. He's been published a lot, and he's a legit surgeon. Right. Like, he obviously knows what he's talking about. Yeah. It's just the gamble that he's taking is so so obviously stacked against him yeah. that you that I think most people would say you would have to be insane to actually do it or so reckless and indifferent to the fate of your patient that you right. shouldn't be practicing medicine in the first place. Yeah, because almost 100% of the doctors that they've talked to said 
this will end in this man's death. Yeah, like like think about this. They're working on rats. Rats have the best outcome of any animal so far, and they're they have like. 30 to 50% survival rate among rats. But even that just means that 30 to 50% survived no more than one day after having their head transplanted. They died from the surgery one way or another. It's just that survival rate meant that they were managed to be revived after the surgery. It doesn't mean that they went on to live a healthy life and bounce their grandchildren on their knee. They died within a day. Yeah. There's no way that it wouldn't kill a human being. Yeah, I mean, even if the guy survived, the likelihood of him being like, well, I got my new body now is is like zero <laughs> right. percent. Watch me bench this. Although he's <laughs> uh, Canavero said he has a 90 percent chance of living a regular life. And Dr. Ren in China is saying, no, he doesn't quit saying that. Right. You know? Yeah. This guy is he's exactly the kind of surgeon for this age, isn't he? Yeah, he really is, actually. You know, oh, it's 90, 90% chance he'll have a normal life. Where'd you get that? Well, it just sounds good. We'll just uh, go with that. Yeah. He, he fits with the times. So back in 2013 in that journal, Surgical Neurology International, um, Canavero published basically a step-by-step outline of how this, um, this surgery would go down. Yeah. And it's, it's not super in depth. It's just, it's basically an overview. But it, it hits, you know, most of the, the salient points. And he's basically gone and, and taken different surgeries and assembled them into this one massive surgery that would be a head transplant from one donor to the next or one donor to the recipient. Yeah. And I think even doctors say this isn't like, you know, he's not crazy. Like when you look at it, it's. It all kind of makes sense. They're just saying, like, it's it's not going to work. Right. And that makes the, sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And the big stumbling block is going to be the spinal cord, because basically everything else he's, he's all these other surgeries that he's cobbling together are proven surgeries. Like, they can be done. It's that's, that connecting the spinal cord, um, that's, that's the biggest obstacle during the surgery. All right, should we go through this thing? Let's. So the first thing you do is you need two teams, uh, two surgery teams, obviously, because you have two bodies in there. In the same operating theater. Yeah. You, there's got to be a very quick, I think they said the heads have to be, or the head has to be reattached in like under an hour to have any chance. Right. But the spinal columns have to be reattached within less than two minutes. Wow. But you have an hour for the whole procedure from from the moment the heads are cut off. So the first step, Chuck, is you remember how we had um, we did a, an episode on a therapeutic hypothermia. Yeah. So they they plan to use therapeutic hypothermia where they cool the head of the recipient down to like fifty degrees. Yeah. Which you know normally it's ninety eight point six degrees, and at that temperature, um, metabolism slows tremendously. So since you have fewer processes going on in the cells, you have less of a need for oxygen, which is good because you're cutting the head off of the body and oxygen can be hard to come by. So by um, 
cooling the bo- the head down to 50, I think 54 degrees Fahrenheit, which is, I believe, 10 degrees Celsius, um, the, the, the metabolism slows down enough that you're buying yourself that hour. Remember, there's that hour time limit. That's because you've cooled down the head, slowing the metabolism, and um, that gives you that hour to carry out the surgery. So you're cooling the head on the recipient, and then you're cooling the spinal column to the same temperature on the donor. Right. So uh, everyone's gotten cooled down to that point. The recipient is going to be lying down at first and then uh, later, like during the surgery and then during recovery and everything, um, he's going to be in a seated position um, because I guess I guess that just makes sense. With gravity, you'd want to be seated. Doesn't that make sense? I think it makes the surgery easier for the surgeons, too. Well, but during recovery, too, like they're not going to lay him back down. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be allowed to lay down again. Maybe not. So uh, they make the incisions at each neck. Uh, they expose the arteries, uh, the spine, the jugular veins. Um, obviously, they're going to clamp everything off. Um, they color code all the muscles, um, which sounds funny, but it's actually pretty smart, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, just like wires in a, in a circuit would be color coded. Uh, they want everything hooked back up to the right thing, so they're color-coding muscles. And they leave right. the spinal cord for the last thing. Yeah, this is the... This, this this is the very, very tricky part here. This is where everybody's like, okay, you're crazy if you try this. But Dr. Canavero says if you cut the spines, the spinal columns of each of the, um, the donor and the recipient with a sharp enough blade... You make a surgical cut, you should be able to promote regeneration of those nerves that you're cutting um, when you reattach them. That if, if the cut is precise enough, the damage that's normally associated with a surgical sever, or not a surgical sever, a spinal sever from like some sort of trauma or injury, um, you won't have all the attendant like scarification and inflammation that you would uh, from that, if you're doing it surgically with surgical precision, so yeah, that's, because that's a big that's a big thing that he's saying. Yeah, that's one of the the biggest um, stumbling blocks to getting these nerves to reconnect. Is the second they're cut, they're going to start to form scar tissue, which makes it much harder to reattach. So, right. in the case of these mice in China, they used a, a one thousand dollar scalpel with a diamond blade so thin that it's transparent. Wow. And so um, this is too small, obviously, for this procedure, but they're going to get a scalpel like that uh, big enough to, you know, to work on a human. Right. So here's uh, actually we'll just say a lot of the things that are, are that people object to with this. But but what what Canavero is saying um, is that with this cut, uh, when you when you take the spines, are, are we at the head yet? Have we moved the head? Um, well, yeah, we've, we've cut the head and there, people should rest easy knowing they're not just picking the head up. Apparently it's going to be transferred on a, on a specially built crane with Velcro straps. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the crane is actually kind of clever too, because it can just hold it aloft above the donor body, right? So that allows for the surgeons to connect everything 
again, in comfort without having to get into any weird positions or whatever. Um, With his floating head staring at them. Yeah, the floating head hanging over the seated headless body. Oh, man. This is the point that we're at right now. So one of the first things they'll do... Um, well, the first thing they're, they're doing, because remember, you have less than two minutes between when you cut the spinal column and when you reattach it. Yeah. Um, so the first thing they're going to do is attach the, the spinal column in the recipient's head and the spinal column in the donor's body. And they're going to put this stuff in that apparently is made of magic. And it's called PEG. Yeah. Polyethylene glycol glue. It's a medical surgical glue. Yeah. That supposedly works some some wonders on the the body. Yeah, it is like magic, and I don't understand how it works. I'm not going to pretend on this show, but um, in China with these mice, uh, before they did the transplant, they would literally just take this blade, and they would sever the spinal cord of this poor little mouse, and then they would take it. It's apparently it looks like watered down scotch, and they would. Uh, it's like an amber fluid and they would take a drop of it, drop it on that little spinal column, stitch the mouse up and then the mouse would walk again. Yeah, that's, that's something that they were reporting from those, that these mice had their spinal columns totally severed and then reattached, glued together with polyethylene glycol. And yeah, within what, like three weeks, I think, or a couple of weeks, the mice were walking again. This one was two days. Jeez. Oh, it was the dog that took three weeks. Yeah, and it said the mouse did not walk perfectly. Its back legs lurched at times. But what do you But compared to a control mouse, uh, yeah, the control mouse couldn't walk. It would just pull the back legs behind itself. So um, this this polyethylene glycol, right, apparently what it does is it's hydrophilic and it attracts fats to it. So it'll go in, you squ- you squirt some into like the, um, the, the incision or the gap between the two spinal columns. And uh, allegedly what it will do is attract these damaged cells and basically fuse them together. They fuse together and regenerate basically into cells. That's one thing it does. And then there's this, this peg that's, um, kind of enhanced, I guess, that these researchers at Rice University are coming up with. They call it Texas Peg um, that has graphene nanospirals in it. And those serve as basically a structure for the cells to grow along. And the whole point of using Peg here, aside from the fact that it can help cells repair and regenerate, is that when Canavero cuts the spinal column, he will have severed these nerves and axons, the white matter that, that transmit electricity through the body from the brain and vice versa, um, and they need to reattach. And if they don't touch one another, um, they're going to grow past one another, and the, 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 tr- the electrical transmission will never be able to take place. He's saying if you use PEG, and then these Texas researchers are saying if you use Texas PEG, these nanostructures will provide a structure for the, the um, neurons the, or the axons to grow along, and they will reconnect and regrow, and the person should be able to have electrical transmission through their nerves again on the spinal column. This is the most controversial point so far. Yeah, and they're also going to have um, electrical paddles uh, on hand because apparently a burst of electricity can help reestablish that communication 
when you've severed the spinal cord. So you want to take a break right now? Yes. And uh, come back and finish up with this gruesome operation right after this. All right, so we have now put the crazy glue, Texas style, in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything's reattached, all the color-coded uh, muscles and nerves and arteries and veins. Like, they've taken great care. They finally sewed the head on. And then they're going to um, – they're not just going to say good luck with recovery. They're actually going <laughs> to induce a medical coma with this gentleman whether it ends up being um, the the Russian or somebody else, because um, he he's got a fatal disease. He may not make it if this right. keeps getting delayed. I don't yeah. think we mentioned that. He's not just like I don't want to live my life like this. Like he shouldn't have lived this long. Gotcha. I so, didn't realize he was that that bad off. Yeah, I think only ten percent of people with his condition make it into adulthood. Wow. And doctors are all like, you should have, you know, you're on borrowed time as it is. You should have gotten a head transplant years ago. Yeah, exactly. So uh, they're actually going to induce a medical coma. Um, I don't know for how long. Did it, it say? I saw like three three weeks is what he was roughly estimating. Just to keep everything, just to get everything growing back together as I calmly as possible. That with while preventing movement too. Yeah. Like the possibility of movement. He's just not moving for three weeks. Which I mean, hello, bed sores, am I right? <laughs> Although I guess that's probably the least of your worries when you've just gotten a head transplant. Yeah, I think so. But that's, that they, I believe that's it. So they're, they're going to be inducing a medical coma and then they'll be passing electrical charges through the spinal column to try to induce, um, axon regrowth and repair the, this this whole time. Yeah. And then after three weeks, he'll get up, do a cartwheel, and run right out of the hospital. No. After three weeks, uh, maybe he'll open his eyes and move his mouth. Um, that would be a success to a certain degree. Uh, what they're really going to be looking for is uh, anything below the neck moving. Um, if he wiggles his fingers or his toes, that is a breakthrough like we've never had in medicine before yeah um but even if that happens that would be just the beginning of a very very long road of uh not only physiological rehab but uh psychological rehab yeah apparently the psychological impact a lot of people are worried about when um canavero wrote uh the the initial article in 2013 in that same journal a couple of other Italian surgeons wrote into the editors and said, there are a lot of things wrong with this ethically. Yeah. Even, even just put aside all of the questions surgically, ethically, you know, this guy's not taking these things into account. One of the things they pointed out was that insanity would be a likely outcome from a, a head or body transplant because we form our, our sense of ourselves cognitively in large part through our body. So if you suddenly have a different body, yeah. you you would you basically wake up to you overnight with with to a big fat uh, body identity crisis or identity crisis in general. 
Yeah, I mean, they've had, uh, they've seen this act out in like hand transplants. And that's really, you know, you can't see your liver or kidney or your heart, mm-hmm. uh, or cornea, like stuff like that. But, um, but I'm sure it's still, you still think about, oh, sure. The, the fact that you're, your kidney is from somewhere else, but you don't have to see it all the time. Yeah, exactly. So just that reminder of a hand, much less an entire body, uh, is going to be emotionally and psychologically challenging, to say the least. Right. Um, there's some other questions that this definitely raises as well. Um, for example, if you wanted to change your gender, would this be acceptable? an acceptable surgery? I tend to say yes on that one. Like in a, change your entire body? Yeah. Instead of just parts of your body? Yeah. Yeah? Just, just you know, uh, that makes sense. It's like all at once, bam, done. What about someone who, what if this works and someone was super rich and mm-hmm. just wanted a different body? Like I want to be eight inches taller and muscular, so let's do this. Here's eighty million dollars. Uh, I would have an issue with that for for one reason, and that would be that you have just taken the um, the body of a potential organ donor that could have saved multiple lives of people who needed those organs. You took them because you wanted to be eight inches taller. Other than that, if if there was a yeah, I, well, that's a pretty big one. I don't even—I don't even want to qualify it with saying other than that, I have no problem with it because that's such a huge problem. It, it disqualifies it in my eyes. <laughs> uh, here's the good news, though, is that um, he doesn't have to get a hundred percent of these cells to remain intact. Uh, there are studies out there, like you know, legit studies that say uh, your your motor function, your basic motor function, can be preserved if you just get twenty percent of those cells. Wow. To remain intact. So, um, the Atlantic says if he failed to fuse every four or five, um, he could fail on every, uh, I'm sorry, four of every five nerve cells mm-hmm. and it still might succeed in there. Right. And well, the thing is, is Canavero's whole thing is anytime somebody raises an objection to it, he's like, peg. Polyethylene glycol will handle it. And it does seem to work some pretty amazing miracles, but the, the, it, it's not just some cure-all magic stuff that just fixes everything. It remains to be seen. And uh, what's kind of fishy is a lot of the, um, or some of the recent papers on PEG and what an, an amazing miracle compound it is are edited by Canavero himself. So. Right. The guy who's saying, no, it's this miracle substance, you should read about it, is the one who's editing the stuff that he's telling you to go read about, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't even think we mentioned just like an organ can be rejected. The, it could reject the body outright from the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, which would be a, a catastrophic failure. Um, that, that would kill you if your, your body rejects your, or your head. Yeah, well, I'm just glad he's hooked up with Dr. Wren, at least, because before that, um, before they had made contact, he was, he was plowing full steam ahead, um, and still wants to, but he hadn't even, he wasn't trying it on mice and, and monkeys. You know, like, he hooked up with someone who was, was like, oh, well, you're, you're doing the real work. 
let's get together on this. So his um, his idea was that he would have to practice on cadavers. That's a good uh, idea. Yeah, he needed to pr- practice on cadavers, but apparently that would come after practicing on um, animals. And apparently, he, f- according to, to bioethicists, he would be hard pressed to get approval even to carry out a, a, an experiment like this on animals these days. Yeah, and most medical ethics boards would be like, "No, this is unnecessary. This is not. You shouldn't be doing this. So don't do that." At least in the United States, I should say. Well, he's never going to do this here. He would almost certainly have to do this in China. Uh, they have a lot more latitude. I saw v- there's this hospital in Vietnam that's like, us, us, we'll do it. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Because they probably can get funding and uh, press, would be my I mean, guess. Yeah, I would imagine. I know they went to uh, the Russians, because this gentleman is Russian, and he thought that he could get the government to chip in, and they said no. And so now he is literally trying to raise money by selling bread. things. Raise bread. He's trying to raise bread. By selling, like, mugs and keychains and stuff. This is not a lie. With his head on, like, these these muscular bodies and stuff. Wow. So it's, uh, I did see, I finally found it. It said between 10 and $100 million, which is pretty big uh, latitude there. I mean, there's like a, there's a, it's pretty easy to point at Canavero and be like, here, what's, what's your deal, man? Yeah. But it, 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 it makes it easy to, to look past, um, the patient Spiridonov's, yeah. um, situation, you know, like I'm sure he wants this to work so bad. Sure. It's heartbreaking. You know? Yeah. I mean, so much so that, like he said, he doesn't want to just be an expensive, uh, euthanasia procedure, but he also said, you know, I'm headed toward death here soon. Like, why not? Yeah. I saw one other thing. You got anything else? I got nothing else. There, I saw that another objection to this by the medical community would be that it could conceivably raise the yuck factor. That's what they call it. Um, among organ donation. Yeah. Uh, just in around among the general public. And this yuck factor, I checked it out because it was in scare quotes. It's a real thing. Um, and it, it, it's basically the general public's, um, disgust toward bio, like bio augmentation, weird surgeries, um, odd transplants. This, this, uh, a head transplant body or a body transplant or head transplant falls right into that weird yuck factor, almost like the uncanny valley. Yeah. And I read this article about it. And apparently there's something, there's a debate going on on whether humans have an inner wisdom of what is good or bad or acceptable. And when our yuck factor is activated, it's actually an inner wisdom that's saying, that's not okay. Don't do that. And this, this author was arguing that that's not true, that it's actually what is called folk biology, that humans are kind of pre-wired to have an idea of what's natural and what's normal. And we're just simply grossed out when we're faced with something that challenges that normalcy, but it doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. There's this debate over which one's correct, folk biology or the the inner wisdom. Wow. You know? That's interesting. It is pretty interesting. Well, we did an entire uh, show in 2010 I think January, or maybe it was June. It started with a J, and it wasn't July. 
<laughs> uh, I wrote it down, but I just threw it away. Anyway, how organ donation works. So yeah, go check that, that was, out. That was a good one. And uh, the therapeutic hypothermia one. Check that out, too. Yeah. Well, if you want to know more about this head transplant operation, you can type those words in the search bar at How Stuff Works, and it'll bring up a great article. And since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this... um, What should I call this one? I'm going to call this uh, Anniversary of the Podcast. Hey, guys. My name is JP, and I'm a business administration major at Christopher Newport University, currently studying at the University of Glasgow. Uh, going into a, my senior year, writing on my 21st birthday, which is also the fourth anniversary that I began following the podcast. Uh, my little brother introduced me to SYSK, and I immediately binged roughly 300 episodes. Not sure how many people write in saying this, but I can proudly say I've listened to every single one. And yes, I know the episode in context of Hippie Rob's Emergence. We haven't talked about him in a long time. No, he's been long gone. He seems like he would be like an assistant to the surgeon. You know? Hippie, I don't think that'd be a good idea. Oh, no, it's a bad idea. And I don't mean a medical assistant. I mean like a, you know, he'd do the jujitsu. <laughs> Maybe. On the idiot questions. Maybe, but it'd just be some like clumsy, like right. roundhouse kick that, that yeah, was yeah. just like six inches off the ground. <laughs> Uh, the past four years have been some of the most influential on my life as a whole. Uh, and your podcast has played a huge part in how I've matured as an adult. Uh, through Chuck's soft-spoken tone and Josh's optimistic demeanor. How about that? <laughs> as well as Jerry's elite producing abilities. Uh, the podcast has made me look forward to Tuesdays, something I never thought was possible. I guess he doesn't listen to Thursdays. Optimistic? Yeah. Optimistic Weird. demeanor. That's you. Never, never would have called that one. Uh, aside from how much I enjoy the... Maybe he has us confused. Maybe. Because you have a soft-spoken tone. Yes, I do. Uh, aside from how much I enjoy the podcast, you really shaped how I think things through, as well as my perspective on many issues. People often forget that some matters have multiple sides to them and that a full opinion should be developed from all the facts. Uh, I figured today was the most fitting to write in, given how much uh, the show means to me continue to look forward to Tuesdays and Thursdays. Oh, there you go. There you go. Uh, and I'm anxiously awaiting for the release of your next live tour schedule. Please come to D.C. Uh, I think we are at some point, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, I've even gone as far as debating whether to get a tattoo, excuse me, a tattoo of the iconic Stuff You Should Know microphone, but oh, not wow. sure Mom would approve of it. Um, John, I'm going to say don't do that. I don't know, John. Maybe do it. Don't do it. I have high hopes that you'll do it. <laughs> your optimistic demeanor. Uh, anyways, keeping uh, keep doing what you're doing, guys. I'll be cheering from the sideline as you continue towards your goal of world domination. Cheers from Scotland. John Patrick Vittori. Oh, wow. And that was a nice little touch at the end. Thank you. Uh, and everybody in Glasgow, Chuck and I know it's Glasgow. <laughs> but we like saying Glasgow. It rolls off the tongue more. Did I say gal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, who is that? John Patrick Vittori. That's right. Thanks a lot, John. We appreciate it. Uh, I say go for the tattoo, but probably shouldn't listen to me. I say don't. You should probably listen to Chuck. Uh, if you want to know more about... Oh, man. Something is wrong with me today, dude. <laughs> 
If you want to get in touch with me and Chuck like uh, John did, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast or Josh M. Clark. You can hang out with us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know or slash Charles W. Chuck Bryant. You can send us an email at StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.